Well, good morning to each of you. I'm very pleased to be here and the opportunity to preach God's Word. Um, we find ourselves here once again, and like Neil said this morning, oftentimes we don't really understand how blessed we are to be here, but that we're able to come and worship God, and we're not... Uh, Authorities aren't coming to close the churches down yet, and we're we're able to have peace in fellowship and just a, an amazing display of God's grace that we're here. And so um, I'm just so thankful for that. Let's, uh, if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This morning... We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. Have you ever thought about the, the love of God just on display in the fact that Jesus Christ preached this sermon and that God gives us instruction throughout his word but you know it's children you know your parents instructing you is a display of their love toward you and 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 the Lord Jesus giving these instructions this sermon we have to remember it's a it's a sermon that he's preaching and that he's teaching um, just such a display of God's love toward us that, you know, a parent to not instruct their child to neglect them is an abusive parent. And I'm just so thankful that God is not like that toward us, that we, we have His instructions to go by and He hasn't left us So let's read the text here from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there, rem- there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, And then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Well, let's remember the last verse that we left off the last time I preached was from verse 20, where Jesus makes this statement, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is Jesus expounding somewhat on that statement. He's giving an explanation. This is an extension of that statement. And throughout the remainder of the chapter, uh, the Lord Jesus gives his interpretation of the law and expounds on some of the main moral issues that the law of God deals with. Jesus is continuing to illuminate God's standard of holiness, his standard of righteousness. And through the rest of the chapter, our Lord gives six examples in which he corrects the false teachings of and the false um, traditions and expounds to give his interpretation, which is 
obviously the correct interpretation on each issue. So we obviously know there's no competition between what the Pharisees were teaching and what the Lord Jesus were teaching. They're not even on the same level. And as I said, this is an extension of verse 20 where Jesus was saying these people that are held up in such high esteem as the the height of righteousness, your righteousness must exceed theirs or you will no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this statement is more greatly clarified over the course of these six examples, which we're going to look at one today in the remainder of this chapter. And at the end of this chapter, Jesus makes another amazing statement where he says in verse 48, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, clarifying what your righteousness has to be, that it has to exceed what perhaps you think or what your perception is about righteousness. And it certainly has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The main thrust that we see here on what Jesus is teaching is the fact that we judge according to appearance. God judges according to the inward, to the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. This he was referring to when Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse, to anoint David as king, and they didn't expect that it would be David, because God is, God said, that's why he says that, that man looks on the outward appearance, but I judge according to the heart. In John seven twenty four, the Lord Jesus says, judge not according to the appearance. Don't judge according to appearance. But judge righteous judgment. So in order to make a righteous judgment, you can't judge on, the, on just appearance. Oftentimes things look very different than what they are. We see an example of, um, I had to think of this example from Genesis 39 with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. There was an unrighteous judgment pronounced on Joseph. That was the account where Potiphar's wife forced herself on on Joseph. He refused her, and so uh, she ripped a piece of his garment and went out. And to many on the outside, when she made the claim that you know she had been uh, assaulted by him in some way, having the piece of his garment in her hand, to many from just an appearance. Uh, attitude toward it, it would seem that Joseph possibly was guilty of doing something, but that wasn't that wasn't the truth. And if they had taken time to examine the evidence, perhaps he would have been um, found not guilty. Now, this concept is not totally lost in our justice system uh, that we should not judge according to appearance. Many, many of you have seen the the image or the. Uh, the statues on certain courthouses of um, a lady, uh, the lady of justice that's holding scales in her hands, and she has a blindfold on, as if to say that justice is supposed to be blind, and it should be. Uh, it shouldn't matter, you know, what someone looks like on the outside. We examine uh, the evidence, we examine the issue at hand as fairly as possibly, and we judge a righteous judgment. But the outward is our default position for judgment. Especially when it comes to making judgments about ourselves. And this is the total view of righteousness that the natural man has, the unbeliever. Their, their, their total concept of righteousness is based on an outward appearance. 
This is what we're reduced to without God reigning in a person's heart. Uh, One man once said to my wife and I as we were uh, trying to share the gospel with him, he said, I'm a good man. I'm I'm going to heaven because I'm a good Catholic. I I do the sacraments. I, I faithfully attend Mass. And that's what the church says I ought to do. And so therefore, I consider myself good. And he wanted us to see these outward deeds in a way to show his righteousness. and, And he had already judged himself righteous based on that. He viewed himself good based on this appearance, these outward things that he had been doing. Just as the Pharisees, this man, like many others, have a perceived righteousness based upon that outward thing alone. And Jesus starts out here, uh, he's going to the Ten Commandments. Now that's not the first commandment, right? The first commandment is, thou shalt know the gods before me. But he starts out here with murder. So why would you suppose that he would begin this teaching with murder? Well, I think it's because even in our society, we're left with a standard of righteousness that is so low that we go to the bottom of the barrel, the worst possible heinous criminal to judge by. And so a self-righteous person would say that murder is wrong. I agree with that. I know that murder is wrong. But I've never murdered because I'm a good person. Or I have never murdered, therefore I'm a good person. And so Jesus chooses to start out with this because the Pharisees had, had viewed themselves in light of that and in, in many other moral uh, instances as well where, yes, I don't murder because I, I'm righteous. I'm not like these over here. Remember the Pharisee who, who prayed the prayer, thank you God, I'm not like these, these tax collectors and all these people. I... I I pray this many times a day. And, but he was further from the kingdom of God. And I'll show you why in a second here. You see, we always seek to look at our outward acts to justify ourselves. Because if we looked on the inward, we could clearly see if we, if we made an inward uh, fair judgment of ourselves we would see there's some things there that are pretty bad but we look on the outside to justify ourselves but if we were look to, if we were to look on the inside for justification then it's clearly evident that our heart is deceitful above all things desperately wicked who could know it and so we would have to agree with Jeremiah 17:9 in that case and in the next verse of Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, 10, it says there that I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. So just like he said uh, to Samuel uh, at the anointing of King David, I, I look at the heart. I don't judge like man. I look at the heart. The Lord searches the heart. In that statement where the Lord says, I try the hearts, I try the reins, it somewhat should be terrifying to us because if I were to come up here and I had some device that could read your mind and I put up here and displayed your thoughts for the last 48 hours, most of us would run out of here in fright, in horror because we don't want people to see those things that we think about. But just like a computer programmer can read the program that he created. God can read our minds because he made it. He knows what's inside our hearts. And, and, and he says he tries the reins. And so there's a testing going on there oftentimes in our walk with God. And so the Lord clearly sees our wickedness in our hearts. And while man attempts to hide that and cover up the eternal wickedness with outward dressing... He cannot fool God. But the sad thing is, is that 
primarily and most unfortunately, he fools himself into thinking that he's good when he's not. Secondarily, perhaps he fools his fellow man. I say most unfortunately he fools himself because the good news of the gospel, when it, go, when it comes to the self-righteous, it hits a brick wall that it finds it difficult to penetrate through because there is a, a, a concrete wall of self-righteousness there that does not need a Savior and doesn't understand the sin, that doesn't understand that it's even the thoughts in our mind that condemn us, even what's inside the heart. Now, Jesus in this teaching, he tears down that wall of self-righteousness. But the concern of the natural man is primarily how he is viewed by his fellow man and not how he, is, how he views God or how God views him. So Jesus gives a testimony about how God views us here, that he knows and that we ought to consider this and recognize this in ourselves instead of trying to hide from it. But the natural man is more concerned with how his fellow man views him, as if he could look good enough and well-pleasing enough on the outside to the people around him that perhaps maybe they would vouch for him before God. Just like when there is a eulogy at a funeral, and a man gets up and says, this was a good man, he did many good things in his life. Well, God knows the truth to that. He knows the truth about that. that. That really means nothing. Only serves to maybe comfort some people. And it's not necessarily bad, but much more easier it would be to preach at a funeral, I would say, to someone who was a believer. And so the good on the outside only is able to fool man and in no way God. And most people evaluate their lives and the lives of others based on external things. That's the truth of it, based on external things. But God is more concerned with the internal than he is the external. And the external deeds of a person is only validated by its representation of what is on the inside. And again, I point back to verse 20. Where Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because they had an external righteousness. And Jesus says you must go beyond that. You must have a righteousness that is also on the internal. So don't misunderstand and think that it totally negates outward obedience. But outward obedience is only validated uh, when it is an internal working of God's grace. And it only becomes acceptable to God in that case. <clears throat> Let's look at the, the, the verse there in 21. And let's look at the word kill. And so that we know what we're dealing with here. You've heard that it was said of them of old time. So Jesus is giving them what they were taught. It's important to note that the, the Jewish Old Testament uh, was in Hebrew. They did not speak Hebrew at this time. That had been lost after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, they spoke Greek or Aramaic. And so they didn't have the scriptures in their own language. They were totally dependent on what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching them about it. Much like before the Reformation, um, people, all of Europe was dependent on what the Catholic Church was telling them the Scripture said. But he says, you have heard it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Well, that's a correct teaching. That's, what, that's straight from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. <clears throat> well, you might say, what is wrong with that? That doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with that statement. Um, now, first of all, we need to understand the word kill here 
that's used uh, in this teaching that Jesus gives in verse 21. You'll find it as the, um, the Strong's number 5407, which the word is phoneo, which means to murder, slay, or to do murder. Um, not killing in a general sense, but to murder. Murder, which, murder is an unlawful taking of someone's life. To slay. This as opposed to the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 10.28, where he says, Don't fear him who can kill the body but has no power over the soul, but I say unto you, fear him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. That word for kill is the Strong's number 615, which is apoctino, which is to kill outright, to destroy or put to death in a lawful sense. Uh, God doesn't kill anybody unlawfully. He gave life and he has the right to take it away. And so he's saying, therefore, uh, fear God who can kill the body, destroy it. So there is a difference between murder and uh, just a, an outright killing or taking of life lawfully. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And that's what we, comes from the uh, Ten Commandments is to murder. So that word kill is to murder, the unlawful taking of a life. But it seems like everything he's saying here is true. Thou shalt not kill. Okay, that's good. Uh, Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Okay, got it. Seems like we're all good to go right there, the Pharisees would say. Then Jesus goes on to say, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. So thou shalt not kill. The Lord begins his expounding of the law with this serious issue, the serious moral issue of murder. And as I said, that's interesting to me because many people gauge their righteousness based on the simple fact that they're better than the worst possible person out there. And so by that logic, the one who actually has committed physical murder could look to someone who's murdered more and say, well, I'm better than him, so I'm righteous. And so on and so forth on down the line. And then our standard of righteousness is, is so terrible that, you know, we end up saying, well, at least I'm not Hitler, so therefore I must be good. Not so. That's obviously a fallacy. But this is what the Pharisees had done. And the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees was, Thou shalt not kill, which is correct, taken from the Ten Commandments, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And they stop there. That's the problem. And so you ask, what's wrong with this teaching? Jesus tells you a little bit in verse 22. But they stop there at, Shall be in danger of the judgment. The Old Testament agrees with this. Uh, so first they added, shall be in danger of the judgment. That's added. You don't see that in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, period. They added, shall be in danger of the judgment. And although this is found in Numbers 35, 30 through 31, it does say there that a murderer is worthy to be put to death. It doesn't just confine it to that. Uh, the judgment that they taught and what Jesus elaborates on from verse 21 is the judgment of the local civil magistrate of the lo- or the local court. <clears throat> and they stop at that. And so you're beginning to see the problem in this teaching, in this tradition. By adding that and then stopping, they remove the judgment of God from the equation. They reduce the issue to punishment at the hands of a local court. This is just like, you know, many in our society are today. You know, if you have, one may have a friend that becomes angry and, you know, is lashing out at someone. He says, hey, man, calm down. You don't want to do this. If you do this, you're going to get arrested and go to jail. The conversation isn't typically, hey, don't do this because you're going to be in danger of God's judgment. No, it's, hey, don't do this because you're going to be in danger of man's judgment, isn't it? That's what people are most concerned about. That's what the Pharisees taught. They negated God's judgment from the equation. 
And what they took out, Jesus puts back in, in verse 22, you see. <clears throat> they, Jesus puts that back in. So they reduce the issue to punishment at the hands of a local court. Secondly, they diminish the command by avoiding the spiritual aspect and the internal issue altogether. They reduce it to only an outward act and left off where does murder come from and in this way they diminish the spiritual aspect of it. And where does murder come from? Envy, strife, hate. And Jesus adds that back in as well. Because, as the Apostle Paul says, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law is spiritual, and so Jesus uh, makes the point of fact on that. This way, they could say, being not guilty of the physical act of murder, I have therefore kept the law. While at the same time, giving themselves a license to be angry without a cause, to be envious, to hate, to slander their fellow man. But no, I haven't committed murder, so therefore I've kept the law. And Jesus attacks that and dismantles it expediently. So this too, the spiritual aspect, Jesus puts back what they took away in the very next verse. So they had the example, they, they ought to have known this, they had the example of Cain and Abel, that envy is what led Cain to murder his brother Abel, that was the, the seed that was in his heart, the root there, uh, the eternal issue of envy. He exalted himself above his brother The Pharisees and the scribes always tended to reduce the meaning and the demands of the law where it suited them. In verse 22, Jesus gives the correct interpretation, and he goes right to the heart. And there's really nowhere for them to hide. Now, this is instruction for us, too, that... Yes, maybe we ought to know that it is, you know, this hate, this envy, this contempt that we have for our fellow man sometimes is wrong, but we avoid that as well by looking at the outside and saying, well, you know, I didn't do anything wrong to him. I didn't beat him up or something. I may wanted to, but I didn't. And so we, that, that, that's a tendency and a temptation for us to follow that same path. So in verse 22, I'm going to read that verse again. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he, he, he says there, yeah, you're going to be in danger of the judgment. The civil magistrates, yes. You're right. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. So he goes a step further. The council there, I believe, is it's a religious convening council uh, like the um, Sanhedrin or something like this, uh, the, the temple where they would, uh, ha they would convene together and they could possibly excommunicate you out of, the, out of synagogue or out of the community. Then he goes on to say, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. I'm going to elaborate more on that in a second, but he is going further than they did. Yes, you're going to be in danger of the civil magistrates. You should be. You're also going to be in danger of the religious council, but you're also in danger of God's judgment. Not just man's judgment, but God's judgment. You're in danger of hell fire when you have this going on inside you. <clears throat> Now, I have to address a translation issue. Uh, in verse 22, where it says there that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, uh, 
Most of your modern Bibles omit without a cause. And that's a travesty. That's, that's a wrong translation. Um, and I'm going to give my reasons for that. So, that translation without a cause, if you remove without a cause, you interject controversy and seemingly contradiction to the Scripture. For if to be angry is sin without any qualifier then we create a problem because, number one, Jesus having just anger in the temple and turning over the tables of the money chambers in Matthew 21. Number two, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Number three, Moses became angry in Exodus 32.19 when he saw the idol of the golden calf the people had made. For God is angry with the wicked every day, it says in Psalm 7.11. Also, there, there's many other scriptures that go along with that. So, to just simply say, to remove whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause and just simply say whoever is angry with his brother, that's just wrong. Because... Anger without a qualifier sometimes we're able to be angry. In fact, the, the closer you grow to the Lord in sanctification, sin makes you more angry. It does that with God. Sin makes God angry. Just to be angry is not sinful. It's anger without a cause. Also, this is not something that Sometimes you have something in italics where the translator added that in for flow or for, uh, to, to help give clarity. This is not that. This, who, uh, this without a cause is found in the manuscripts. It's found, it, it's, in fact, it's in the majority of, of the manuscripts. So we have, not to go too deep into this, but the phrase without a cause is found in so we have 5, roughly 5,556 New Testament manuscripts. The vast majority include without a cause from Matthew 5.22. Only 10 manuscripts reportedly do not contain that phrase. 10 out of over 5,500. Not only do we have the vast majority of manuscripts supporting the wording found in the authorized version, but also early church fathers' writings have been found quoting it. The Greek word for without a cause is... Ek, which means inconsiderably without purpose, without just cause. Dean John Burgeon, who was dean of Chester University, an Anglican churchman, wrote in a book called Revision Revised in 1881, in which he cites no less than 30 ancient witnesses that use the word ek in regards to Matthew 5.22. And there he lists them by name. And most importantly, the evidence for staying true to this wording of without a cause is that it agrees with the rest of Scripture. And so there is a, there, there is a qualifier there with anger without a cause. And I believe, I said it was a travesty because I believe it changes the meaning of the verse to a certain degree. It changes the meaning of the verse. So... I'm convinced that the Lord is talking about anger that is unwarranted, selfish, and envious. Also, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, agrees that it is unjustified anger. Um, I read that from him. So I believe that if, if, you, if you have a translation that is removed that, then they've done you a disservice. But so the word raka is somewhat of an untranslatable word, uh, but it is a derogatory word that shows contempt and hatred for one's brother. And 
this, you, you know, you may call it any kind of raka, you know, saying you idiot or something like that. But it, it, it's, it's not really a translatable word, but it just shows contempt and hatred. Like, you know, an uncare. You know, I'm just going to, this guy may be mad, and you may say it or you may think it. There's some people that's probably called me raka. I may not know what it means, but... But this, and also the word brother, it, it, it could mean a relative, a countryman, uh, you, a, a fellow believer, but it could also just mean your fellow man. Um, so that's important to note. So to say raka or fool shows no care for the, the, the other person, no care for your fellow man. No care to try and work out whatever the problem is going on there. No, no love. Just a casting aside and saying, you know, you, you idiot. You know, get, get away from me. Well, I'm so thankful that God has not been that way with us. But just a throwing away and a severing of the relationship. We ought to try to mend relationships where we can. And so doing this, you know, just saying raka or, you know, just having no care for the other person, you're obviously not loving your brother. And so how can you say that you love God? Let's look at 1 John 4.20. You, you all know the verse. I have to turn there because I didn't write it down. First John 4.20 if, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loved God who loveth God, love his brother also. It's a pretty simple principle there. How can we say we love God if we don't love the one who's, you know, that we can see, that we're right in front of us? We can't see God. God's a spirit. And, you know, we, we sing the songs and we give praises to God. But if we hate our brother, if we have contempt for him, then how is it that we can say we love God simultaneously? That's what John is saying there. And, and that's what Jesus is getting to the point also, that having contempt for your brother shows there's a problem on the inside and shows that your relationship being broken with your brother could, could maybe because you have a relationship that's broken with God. And so God's character is love. He does not cast us off. Or throw us away. And when we displease Him, even though we may say or sometimes do something that warrants being called rakah by Him, He doesn't. He, he seeks to rectify the situation and mend the broken relationship. The amazing love of God, you know, He seeks to mend the broken relationship with the, heinous, wicked, the most heinous wicked person. Um. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5. So this is God's character. And this is what he wants us to exhibit toward our brother. He doesn't call us Raka, instead he calls us his child. And desires relationship, desires our relationship with him to flourish. Not to be dissolved and when we say, when we have this contempt and when we, we call our brother or fellow man by a derogatory name, then we have no care for the relationship. We just assume it be dissolved. But friends, God is not this way and, and praise be Him for that. And when we have this sort of anger and contempt for a brother... We show that the only love we really have is for ourselves, not for our brother and not for God. 
And we, like Cain, who exalted himself above his brother, not only murdered him, but then remember what he said when God came to him. He said, am I my brother's keeper? That's contempt. Not only did he kill him, but he's, he had contempt and disdain for him. He didn't care that his brother was dead. Am I my brother's keeper? He had no care, no remorse. And in effect, when we say that, when we just dismiss someone and say, you know, have a derogatory comment about them, we don't care. If something, you know, what if they go away from us and something bad happens? And what if that's the last time we see them? We're basically saying we don't care. But God's not like this. Jesus left us with the command from John fifteen twelve. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's an important one, to love one another, not to have contempt. And this hatred that Jesus is illustrating here, uh, this hatred puts man just as much in danger of hell as the physical act of murder. And this is what he is meaning there when he says you're in danger of hell fire. Jesus says in Matthew fifteen nineteen, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and so on. It's interesting that he uses you know, those two things uh, to say there in Matthew 15 because those are the first two things he deals with here in these first two, two examples at the end of the chapter. Because next he's going to deal with adultery. At first he deals with murder. But he says there that out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and so on. So it shows that the heart is not in line with God. And there needs to be a rectifying there. Which brings us to verse 23 and 24. In verse 23 and 24, let's see, therefore, verse 23, Therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Verse 23 and 24, the Lord shows us the concern that we should have over a relationship with our brother. That we can't truly offer God anything by way of a gift or some kind of service if we harbor ill toward our brother. That's important. To understand that because if we don't understand that, then we become, we fall into the same trap of the Pharisees. And, and, and we do this also. We have an issue in our heart. We seek to cover it up by an outward deed. Well, I, you know, I go to church. You know, I, I go and I worship God. But you have this saying against your brother. Well, I serve God by preaching or doing whatever. I, I give, you know, in the service of God. But you have this thing this, that you're harboring against your brother. And, and that creates a problem. We can't truly offer God anything if we harbor ill toward our brother. This also tells us that our attitude should not only be, should not be negative, but positive. So not only should we refrain from harboring hatred and evil thoughts toward our brother, but we should... Seek out good and seek out reconciliation. It's not enough to just say, you know, take the thought captive and say, okay, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to let it go. But actually to even go further and seek out a positive, to think on something good. The commandment not to kill goes further Pass the act, not only that thou shalt not, but to the positive of taking steps to put ourselves right with our brother. And this also deals with our tendency to cover up our sin with a good deed. Much like the Pharisees who were expert in doing that, we become experts as well. 
We find ourselves at odds with the commandment. We recognize the hatred in our heart. And we go to offer God a gift. We go to try to make our good outweigh our bad. And we think that that deals with it. And the Lord says, leave thy gift at the altar. Go first and take care of the issue with your brother. Deal with that issue first and then come back. Notice it isn't even if it's the other... It, it is even if it is the other party, sorry, who has the problem with you. This, be, this is because, you know, to take the thought captive is good. But going this route even removes the basis for the thought. You understand? You take care of the situation. You take care of the problem you have, the controversy that you have with your brother. You have a talk. You get it out and shake hands and, you know, in love, you mend that relationship, you don't even have to worry about the thought coming back. So the Lord teaches us here that we need not only dismiss the evil thoughts of hatred toward our brother, but also address the cause and the source of that hatred. The problem that has that, that, that problem, the source, the problem that has led to the evil thoughts. In doing so, we flee from evil and resist the devil. That's fleeing from evil. And resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Put him to flight. Verse 25 and 26 Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver, to, deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. <clears throat> these two verses indicate to us the sense of urgency that we must have in dealing with these things. Not to put it off. Not to procrastinate. Not to have this idea of, well, I've got better things to do. This is difficult. It's a difficult thing to tackle. Agree with thy adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him. While you're still on earth, while you still have this life while you're still able to go to your adversary, deal with it. This also indicates to us that while, yes, our sins are against our fellow man, the bigger issue is our primary sin is vertical against God. The law of God is upon us and reveals to us our sin, and we, that, even the sin we have in our hearts. And Jesus says you need to deal with this now, while there is time, while you're in the way, while you're still here in this life and on this earth. And who is the adversary to the unbeliever? God. He's the adversary to the unbeliever. That's a big adversary to have, a real big one. And he says, agree with thine adversary quickly. You must come to agreement with him quickly. Because you may not wake in the morning. And it is God alone who has the, com- the command of the, great, of the greater courts of justice. And has the right to demand the uttermost farthing. Much like a creditor that demands a payment of a high debt, it'd be good for you to settle that quickly uh, because if you don't, then the interest mounts up and gets out of hand really fast. You can't pay it, say, I need to settle this you know, for a lesser amount. Um, just like that, 
We want to deal with this quickly. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not merely offer a settlement for a lesser amount, but He forgives the whole thing, all the debt, because Jesus paid it all. And so, I would say here at closing, who is a murderer? I think the question Jesus answers very full. And we know that God sees our heart, knows our thoughts, and this would cause us to seek after Him and deal with these things quickly. This also, these verses give us an insight to how God views things. This teaching of Jesus comes from a place of love where he is instructing us. This correcting of false teaching is a big part of of this sermon that he's preaching. Correcting where they had been led astray. And so the love of God is prevalent here. The The danger of the judgment of God is prevalent here. But we know that God is is gracious to us and He offers that forgiveness to everyone uh, who would come and call on the name of Christ. And so uh, we have to consider these things in light of that. That Jesus is suffering on the cross. You know, he's, He's teaching this prior to that of course and so he's really in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and through the rest of the Gospels he's paving the way for the purpose of why he had to die but he is able to forgive it all and so we we look to Christ as our source of righteousness because we too have committed murder. God bless you.